Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. First uh, Samuel, so if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn to First Samuel chapter 2. And uh, I might need to give a little background for those who might not have been present last week um, about what's going on as we get into chapter 2. Chapter 2 at the beginning is a prayer from Hannah. Now, as we read last week, there were three main people involved. There was uh, Elkanah, who is a polygamist husband, and the Bible records polygamy but never condones polygamy. It's always kind of a bad deal, and that was the, the case with his two wives, Panina and Hannah. So Hannah is the main person that we're looking at right now, kind of in our understanding of bringing the gospel down and seeing the way it plays out in people's lives. Hannah, in a culture where women were, uh, like on Instagram, there are so many things telling you as women what you need to have to be righteous and to be acceptable and to be worthy. Uh, In the first century, there was really one, (laughs) and that was you had lots of children. Uh, That was it. And so uh, she was barren. She didn't have any children, and she felt the weight of that. Penina, who was uh, the other wife, Penina had lots of children, but Hannah had something that Penina wanted. Hannah had the love of her husband, and Penina watched as her husband loved her rival. And so she was angry, and she was bitter, and she was uh, jealous of Hannah. So at every point she could, she provoked Hannah. And so finally, Hannah is at the temple area in Shiloh, in the tabernacle area, and she goes into the presence of the Lord, and she prays, and she leaves there that day, leaving it all in his hands, and she says, if you want to give me a child, then the child's life has to be about you. It can't be about my mental health issues. She didn't say that that way, but that's kind of what she meant. And so she left that day feeling free and at peace, and God in time gave her a son named Samuel, which the Lord, the Lord heard, God heard her. And so what we're looking at in chapter 2 is she's come back and she is bringing her young son Samuel to the tabernacle to present him and he's going to live there for, uh, as he grows up. And so we'll be looking at that over the next couple of weeks in Samuel's early years, but we're going to look this morning at Hannah's prayer, having recognized and realized a lot of the good things about God. We're going to re- read in 1 Samuel chapter 2, the first 11 verses. So if you're willing and able... In honor of God and his word, let me invite you to stand as we read 1 Samuel uh, chapter 2, starting with verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down the Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. 
He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. This is God's word. He's given it to us because he loves us, and he wants us to live by faith before him. So let me pray and ask him to bless us this morning as we look at it in more depth. We all have stories. We all have stories. And Lord, you, you know them all. You are involved in our stories. And uh, you know the, the, uh, the beginning from the end. And so we pray this morning uh, for redemptive stories. We pray this morning for us to have the knowledge of how you direct our stories and how you are the God who brings a redemptive reversal for your people. Lord, we've been through some hard things, many of us in this room, and we've seen your hand at work. And many of us right now are in the middle of very difficult things, and we need the assurance that you are at work and you will work. And so we come to you this morning with open hands and open hearts. Give us open minds to be able to understand. Pour out your spirit upon us. And Lord, I pray that you would be kind to the person who's standing in front with all of his insecurities and frailties and flaws, and that you would be pleased to speak words of life and truth to the people in this room. Bless us and be with us as we look at your word together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Something we're looking at uh, this morning is really having a, a perspective on life and everything that's going on in it. Uh, I find in, in life there are some people who are idealists and somewhat um, optimists about everything. And they're always looking to the bright side of things and they downplay the hard things. But when something really, really difficult and hard takes place, they are devastated because they're unprepared for it. So their optimism is kind of a, not a, just a personality trait. It's, it's a way of wanting to look at the world and wanting to only see the good things. But when the bad happens, they're devastated. And then there are other people, and uh, maybe some of you are that in this room. You're a little bit more on the pessimistic side. I'm not, I'm not looking at anybody in particular. I'll look out. So maybe there's some pessimists and cynicists in the room. And uh, what's interesting about people that are in that camp is they tend to look at life and say, why bother? You know, nothing's really ever going to change. Nothing's going to be different. And so we find that these things rule over us and shape the way that we uh, enter into life. But this passage is moving us towards really a... Uh, a balanced view of the brokenness and the redemption that God allows and brings into our lives. And so I, as I was reading through this, uh, you, you got the background. It's, it's Hannah, and she's praying a prayer. And uh, I, as I was reading one of the commentaries, he said, it would be really strange to think about Hannah praying this prayer in Panina's presence. <laughs> Can you imagine her standing up and praying this prayer and Panina's right there with her? That would be really, really uh, difficult um, and, but it got me thinking about just the language that the passage uses here. It sounds a little militant 
in some places, raising up and casting down. And, and for some people, as they're reading this passage, they may think, this is really what bothers me about the Old Testament, the wrath, the anger, all of these things that are here, um, the militant language, the fighting language. But I started thinking about it as well as, you know, we use fighting language in modern culture where it's symbolic and metaphorical to some degree. So we talk about people fighting their own private battles. We say, I'm fighting off a cold. Are you really fighting off a cold? Knives, guns, all of those things? No, it's metaphorical. I am, uh, so we use all kinds of military language like this to face things in life. And Hannah's using this kind of language in her prayer, and properly so, because this is the way life often feels. We're fighting a battle. We're at war to some degree. It's a struggle for us. Uh, the world as it is is not the way that God intended it for, to be when he first created it. And so we find ourselves currently living in a place that is broken. The world as it is is not how God made it to be. So life is a struggle. So we're going to dive into this passage. And as we do, I'm going to talk about something that's kind of in the backdrop of this passage. And uh, so let's dig in. Uh, if I were to ask you to describe what God is like, some of you, if you grew up in the church, I know how you're going to respond. You're going to respond the way that Hannah describes in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. There is no one, there is none holy like the Lord, for there's none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Holiness. You would say God is holy. Now, holiness on one level refers to God's otherness, his wonderful uh, value superiority over us he's not like us and colloquially he's not cut from the same cloth he's not subject to the same foibles and flaws and things that we are he is different and superior to us on another level when we talk about holiness it refers to the reality that god is morally pure he's not subject to the same sins flaws temptations or anything that the rest of us are he's not like us in that he is morally completely pure so that the angels flying in god's presence will say Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Everything that he does is going to be exactly correct and right. Some of you, uh, you might have, if I asked you, what do you think God is like? You would say, well, God is, uh, God's loving. And you would be exactly right, because that's what the Bible says. In 1 John chapter 4, he says, God is love. In the Old Testament, when God is passing in front of Mo Moses and showing his glory, God gives a self-definition of himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And even that is an expression of his love for th those who have been victim and been hurt by others. So God is a God of love. We'd be exactly right in saying that. But probably something that none of you would have said in here is to say, uh, God is a happy God. Would you have used that word? God is happy. Now, where I'm getting that from is, is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. He's, it refers to God. It says, he is the blessed and only sovereign ruler, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that word is the same word that's used in the Beatitudes to talk about us as blessed are the poor in spirit. And uh, Greek scholars will say that that word is makarios, which is the word happy. Now, it's deeper than the way we might use happiness in terms of like an emotion that I'm feeling at present. It's, 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 more, it's deeper, 
it's more substantial. It's more like a state of being. It's, it's being happy at your core. It's being fundamentally happy, being bulletproof happy, that nothing can harm this. Nothing can change this. I am happy. And so what the Bible, when the Bible talks about God as the blessed and only sovereign, it's saying he's happy in and of himself with an unflappable core happiness, bulletproof happiness, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in eternity past, holy, loving, and happy. So when God created the world, he didn't create the world to be happy. He, ex- he created the world as an expression of or an overflow of his happiness. It was in him, and he created the world with that. Think about an artist. Uh, I started off in visual arts when I was in college, and so you have to sit through art history classes. You can tell what I thought just by saying you have to sit through those. And so you talk about these different artists and the influences that led them to paint or to produce art the way that they produced it. And so they would talk about, you know, this is during a period of time when he's grieving and there's depression. He sees the hardships in the world. And so he uses a lot of grays and blues and blacks in his work because it's an, he's expressing what he's going through, what's inside of him. And then some of them, you have them expressing pointillism and different forms of art. And they were expressing the, the philosophy of the world, that everything's atomized at this partic- uh, with their artwork. And so they're expressing what's inside of them. When God, is cre- when God created the world, it was an expression of who he is, holy and loving and happy. I mean, think about what you create. When, when, when I'm sad, it's hard for me to create anything. But when I'm happy and when you're happy, what are the kinds of things you like to create? For some of you, it's like, I like to bake. I like to bake cakes or I like to bake meat or I like to make sausages. Um, for some of you, it's, uh, I like to make daisy chains. You know, I like to give th- make things for my grandkids to send to my grandkids. We make things based on what's going on inside of us. God created the world from the overflow of his happiness. Sin is not part of of who God is, and sin is not a part of the overflow of who he is, creation and the beautiful things that are in it, that's an expression of who God is. And so when it's using this kind of battle language, there's the movement towards restoring the brokenness of the world and what makes God, what the expression of God's happiness in the world around us. Now, I'm not the only one who's seen this. There are other people who have recognized this aspect of God's happiness and creation. This is a quote from Charles Spurgeon, okay? Do we have it on the Lord? Yes, we do. Let a man truly know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he will be a happy man. And the deeper he drinks into the spirit of Christ, the more happy will he become. That religion which teaches misery to be a duty is false upon the face of it. For God, when he made the world, studied the happiness of his creatures. You cannot help thinking, as you see everything around you, that God has diligently, with the most strict attention, sought ways of pleasing man. He's not just given us our absolute necessities. He's given us more. Not simply the useful, but even the ornamental, the flowers, the the stars, the hill and the valley. All these things were intended, not merely because we needed them, but because God would show us how he loved us. And how anxious he was that we should be happy. Now it is, not unlike, it is not unlikely that the God who made a happy world would send a miserable salvation. 
He who is a happy creator will be a happy redeemer. Isn't that fantastic? Looking at that, our God is fundamentally happy. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, God is not only happy in his work of creating and redeeming, but he is also enthusiastic. Somebody is having a good time painting the sky, causing the birds to sing. Somebody is running the universe. And this from Randy Alcorn. He said, good-hearted laughter is a tribute to the happy God who created laughter and delights to enter into it with us. So this is the backdrop. This is the world which God made. This is the world that we're going to have. It's the world that God created, but it's not the way that the world currently is. And this is an important backdrop for, for the, this passage. We live in a world that's broken, and yet there's a happy God who is moving towards us with redemption. Because God's happy, he created the world for people to enter into that happiness. And because sin entered into that world and we are not happy, God in his happiness, his love, and his holiness is seeking to restore the world that he created to increase our joy and to make it permanent. And so we step into this passage. And Hannah, in chapter 2, verse 1, saying, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies. Now, what's fascinating about that is you and I, when I first read that, I would think, well, she's talking about Penina. That's pretty harsh. I think Hannah needs counseling. Um, but what's fascinating about it is she doesn't say, my enemy, singular. She says, my enemies, plural. Now, some of that has to do with the prophetic nature of this and what she's recognizing about the character of God and his people. But some of it is a recognition, I think, that the enemy ultimately is not Panina. There are other things that are talked about in the Bible as being our enemies. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, Peter says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. That's beyond Panina. 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says to Timothy, uh, actually, we'll do that last. We'll do, go to Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities in the spiritual realm, right? So it's not people. It's not flesh and blood. There's something bigger going on. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So these are the enemies that he's talking about. It's not Panina. This is bigger than Panina. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So it's a fight to get to the end of the finish line, to believe and say, I believe in Jesus. I trust him because everything in the world around us is trying to push us away from the experience of God's joy, the reality of God's joy, confidence in God's presence, his holiness, who he is. So in the midst of a broken and fallen world, which is due to our rejection of God, to believe that God is who he says, who the Bible says, that he created these things to be beautiful to begin with, we are fighting to be close to God. Now, I've experienced that in my life. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. If everything in my life is going uh, well and I'm far from God, I'm not a happy person, even though my life is going well. But when things are going horribly, if God is still close, I feel like I can face the entire world, right? And this is what, part of what she's talking about. We are fighting to be close to God, to experience the joy of his blessing, to experience the power of his presence, to experience confidence in his promises and his provision. And so when we read in John 17, verse 3, 
He says, this is eternal life. This is it. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So the fight is to say, I want to be close to him and draw close to him. That's what we're fighting for. Um, So who's the enemy? Anything that diminishes God in us. Anything that diminishes God to us. Anything that diminishes God through us is the enemy. Anything that prevents or hinders God's people from experiencing God's love, affection, forgiveness, and favor, that's the enemy. And it takes various forms. Uh, Being a college minister, I saw with my college students, there were some classes that because of things they were taught in their classes, it diminished their confidence. It diminished their experience of God's love and his presence. I've seen that uh, with boyfriend-girlfriend problems. I've seen it with hardship. Some of you face that right now with 2024 predictions. What's it going to be like over the next year? And you feel yourself more afraid than confident of God in your life. We feel these things. And this is why Hannah's prayer is pretty strong military language. It's because it's, you know, looking back, she's, she's gone through really hard things with Penin, but looking back, she says, she realizes that was a fight. That was a struggle. And God has gotten me through this, and now I'm rejoicing because I can see the way that God has brought me through this. Uh, he is a God that is, uh, is good. Now, why refer to Penina this way? Well, because of who Penina ought to have been and how Be- Penina actually behaved. Penina and Elkanah and Hannah all went up to worship, right? They, would go to the, they all went to Shiloh. They all went to where the tabernacle was. And so Penina, just like Hannah, made a profession of faith in God, the Lord God of the Bible. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. That same God. But because of her jealousy towards Hannah, she did everything she could to provoke Hannah, to make her feel small, to take away her joy, and as a result, take away her confidence in God's affection for her. There must be something wrong with her that she doesn't have children. What Penina should have done Panina should have gone to Hannah and said, Hannah, do you remember the story of Abraham and Sarah? How Sarah was old and she couldn't have children, but God still blessed her. God might bless you. Do you remember when God passed in front of Moses and said, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Do you remember that God? He loves you. And so do we. So do I. And so she should have played the role in Hannah's life of being an encourager, but instead she became someone who was chipping away at uh, Hannah's confidence. Uh, He's he's a God who loves widows and orphans, and Hannah, I believe that he loves you too. So Penina, more than antagonizing Hannah, was really bearing false witness to God and making herself an enemy of God's purposes in the life of Hannah. See that? Okay. Okay. So we step back into the passage a little bit and we see that uh, what Hannah actually came to realize and what she began to realize is that God is a happy God who steps in to bring redemption into her situation, to restore her joy. Because this is who God fundamentally is and it says in chapter 2, verse 8, this loving, happy, holy God made the foundations of the world and set the pillars up there. So this is how he intended the world is for us to be joyful and happy in his presence in it. Verse 3, he sees all the brokenness, highlighting even the hidden motives of people who are pretending. 
And then he's the God who reverses everything that's broken. Follow me with this. So chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, if you can put those up on the screen so people can read along. He reverses and redeems situations. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down the Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And so Hannah is recognizing this is the kind of person God is. So on the front end, she knew she, he's somebody I can go and just lay my troubles before. And here, this is her second prayer that's recorded. It's longer. She's got a recognition of God is a God who reverses, who redeems, who changes. He brings the restoration of happiness and brings a happy ending. He's a God of redemption. He's a God of reversal. And sometimes he brings small reversals in our lives, right? Situational changes. But I think what he's really getting at here is he's setting the stage by saying, this is who the Lord is. And one day, someday, he's going to bring an even greater change, an even greater reversal. So he's preparing the way for the coming of David, but even more so, he's preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. Look at verse 10 with me. Uh, this is the first time in uh, the Old Testament that it connects this idea of anointed with the king this way. God's, the Lord's anointed this individual person. It says, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, how did Hannah even know that this is the case? Well, some of it is God has already, Abraham had talked about kings coming from him. The end of uh, Genesis talks about king coming from the line of Judah. Deuteronomy talks about this. So this, this is already in the air before King Saul is made king or King David is made king. And she is speaking beyond herself in the midst of this saying, not only has God brought a reversal for me, but he's going to bring a reversal for all of his people when he brings this person and brings an ultimate reversal and brings Jesus to redeem. We rejoice because against expectation, like Hannah, God is going to bring forth a son. And some of you pointed this out last week after the sermon. I said I didn't have much time to talk about it. But if you're paying attention to the scripture, you know that there are several stories that are talked about where there's a woman who unexpectedly has a child who's born. So in the Old Testament, it's barren, it's barren, it's barren. And then eventually uh, they conceive. With Mary, she's not barren, she's a virgin. And so it's an even greater miracle. And God's saying, I'm going to do a reversal that nobody expects. I'm going to bring a redemption nobody expects from a source no one expects. And I'm going to bring it a, about a, a complete change. So ultimately, the death of Jesus is followed by a resurrection. And for us, we're sinners who are made righteous. We're enemies who are made sons and daughters. There is an ultimate reversal that takes place. And so what we see in this passage is that uh, Hannah says in verse 1, I exult in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. And so she, she's expressing 
uh, the shift that's taking place inside of her. She prayed and turned it over to God, and he has restored joy, even if he didn't give her a child. But here, she recognizes he's even more. God is bringing even a greater restoration because he's going to remove all wickedness, all evil. And I want you to notice that in the midst of this, she has an unflappable happiness. She has, an un, she has a bulletproof happiness that nothing can shake. And if you remember from last week, that all came before uh, she left the temple. It all happened before she conceived. It all happened when she recognized God is a God who loves. He's a God who is for me. And she was able to step back into the world without, uh, without any kind of uh, susceptibility to the criticisms of Panina. And that's part of why Nehemiah 8 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Because when we're joyful in him, that may, enables us to be strong no matter what we're facing. And God has provided that in any and every situation. And it's why Hannah says here in chapter 2, verse 1, there is no rock like our God. And so what she's calling us to do is to say, there is no rock like our God. There is, uh, he is the provision of strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And no matter what I'm facing in this life, I can stand up under it because I have a foundation of joy and a mandatory happy ending that's coming. He's a God that has bulletproof joy inside of him, a fundamental joy that nothing can shake. And he's calling us into that same kind of happiness based upon him. Now, here's why this matters for you and for me, or at least part of why, is... You can bring any of your struggles before God, any of them, and he can take it. Uh, when I was doing college ministry, there was this one day where I was on campus, and I would do this thing where I'd have lunch, I would be with students from 12 to 5. And so back-to-back, one-hour intervals or one-and-a-half-hour intervals, I would meet with students. And, you know, some of it was light. We'd play cards, we'd laugh, we'd cut up. And the, but there was this one day where back-to-back students talked about the most devastating things they'd ever been through. So one student was watching her parents' marriage disintegrate. And it was hard. And so I sat there with her in her grief as she was talking about it. Another student was facing bone-crushing uh, loneliness. Nobody, she felt like she didn't have a friend in the world. Another young man was struggling with doubt. Just like, is even, any of this even true? And then the last um, had lost a friend um, from an illness. And so I'm sitting with these students as they're crying and, and laying out their circumstances. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm putting on the campus minister brave face and everything. Like, hey, I'm going to walk through this with you. And then when it was over and I got into the car to drive home, I just sat in the parking lot and a wave of emotion came over me and I just started sobbing in the car with the brokenness of the world and feeling like I don't want to go back tomorrow. I don't want to help anybody. I just want to go and curl up in a ball in my bedroom on the floor. You know, you're kind of like, is that what pastors think? Yeah, sometimes they do. That's what pastors think. And, uh, and I've encountered people um, now, some of you are thinking, oh, I, I probably shouldn't go tell Stephen anything. No, you, you can tell me. It's good. 
Because you have the sense of there are things I can't tell other people because I don't want them to carry that burden. And I understand that. But because God has a core of happiness, he can carry whatever it is that you bring to him. In fact, he wants you to do that and wants you to bring to him all the worries, all the cares, all the sorrow, all the, all the heartache. It doesn't undo him. So when the Bible says, cast all your cares upon him because he loves you, that is completely the way God is. He wants you to bring those things and cast them. Uh, I, I came across a, a, uh, something online a while back. And then there was this young man talking about the way that we have a constant news feed that's going on for most of us online. It's available. We have these news feeds. And I remember growing up as you had your evening news for about 30 minutes, and then maybe you had about 30 minutes of world news, and now it's just constant barrage, whether you're on TikTok or Instagram or whatever you're on, it's this constant barrage of news that's coming. And this guy was saying, I don't think we were created to have that much bad news cast upon us every day. Because it's doing something to us. It's making us angry. It's making us depressed. Uh, it's making us feel like we can't cope. It makes us be isolated. It makes us fearful. And then he went on to say, but God can handle it. God is in control. He is holy. He is loving. He's happy. And he knows that the end is coming when Jesus comes back and everything is set to right. So he's calling us to cast our burdens upon him, not because everything's going to be right, right at the moment when we do that, because we know a God who makes beautiful pictures. And he's painted a beautiful picture of what's coming someday when Jesus comes back. And there's all crying and mourning and pain is removed. And he, he calls out and says, Behold, I'm making everything new. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And we won't have these cold days when we don't even want to go outside. We'll have cold days when we want to go outside. Um, we'll have new bodies. We'll have new relationships. I won't have the same old struggles with, that I've struggled with. And this is what God promises to us. And he says, that's coming. Because he's a holy and loving and happy God. And he has something fuller and more permanent in store for us. So today... What is the burden that you're carrying? In a moment, we have an opportunity to come to this table. Take this table as a sign to you this morning that God loves you, that he sent his son. When you look at your life right now, don't take your circumstances and say, I know that God loves me because my circumstances are going well. But look to the God who loves you, who's happy, and says, you know that I love you. Not because Hannah knew Ultimately, that God loved her, not because he gave her a son. But we know that God loves us because he has given us his son. And he's taken our sins and our burden. And he has made us to be his sons and daughters through him. So let me pray. We have all manner of ways that we conceive of who you are. Some of them are biblical and some of them are not. So we pray that what we just talked about this morning would invade our thoughts, would reshape our thoughts, that we would not see a frowning God who looks upon us 
with disappointment. But we would see a holy God, a happy God, a loving God who calls things that are not as though they were, who makes sinners sons and daughters, who justifies the wicked and who brings us home someday to a place we couldn't imagine. Would you bless us and would you be with us as we continue to worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.